0: morning church I'm Rick Hollinger and I have the privilege of reading this morning's scripture which comes from Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful that you have brought us here, that you've brought us into the place where we hear and learn from your word. Your word is powerful to tear down and to build up, and you know each heart here. You know where walls need to be torn down. You know where strongholds need to be built up. Father, we pray that your word would do its work through your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. It is good to be back here. I was technically back last week, but uh, good to be back from a sabbatical. And I just wanted to say thank you, church, for allowing me to have that sabbatical. It was a very restful, refreshing time. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask what I did. I didn't do much. I did things that I find enjoyable and refreshing. I did some car work. Uh, I did some woodwork. I sat by the fire some evenings in my backyard. I read a lot. Uh, And I thought about this series. Back in The spring, when Bob and I were planning out the summer, he said that the psalm series would be done in June, and I could do whatever I wanted while he was on sabbatical in July. And immediately, the wheels started turning, right? I thought, okay, a five-part series. I'm right, Bob's wrong, five parts. I thought, uh, a five-part series on how the pitch clock is ruining baseball. But I realized... I need at least eight weeks for that. (laughs) But seriously, almost from the get go, I was inclined to the book of Jonah. It, It fits, right? It's a short book. I can do it in four to five weeks, so that helps. And I love the book of Jonah. Someone reminded me this morning that during COVID, when we were doing online devotionals, that I did a a four or five week devotional series on the book of Jonah. And I remember thinking at that time, I wish I could preach through the book. Well, here we are. And maybe you're thinking, Jonah, isn't that like a a kid's story? And I get why you might say that. It's got an animal or two in it, right? Right? Matter of fact, last week when I ordered a commentary by the Old Testament scholar uh, John Walton, this is what I got <laughs> by, the, by the Old Testament scholar John Walton. So he's doing kid books now. But Now kids, I, I do hope it's a story that you'll find engaging. It's a fun story. At points, it's actually a funny story. So it is for you. But it's not just for you. It's for all of us. In this story, you find important themes about obedience and disobedience and repentance. There's also themes related to God's sovereignty, His wrath, the Missio Dei, the the mission of God, and especially His grace and mercy. So I'm looking forward to a, a journey through this book with you. I love the book of Jonah. It's a great story. It's a great piece of literature that you can read as literature and, and dissect and enjoy that way. But I'm going to be up front. I love the book of Jonah. I dislike immensely the person Jonah. And you'll see why. It's going to come out. Okay. This morning we're only looking at the first three verses of this Story and how the story kind of gets set up and, and and gets rolling. So the book of Jonah begins with kind of a, a formulaic a, a formula formulaic language. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, to someone who's familiar with the Old Testament, that, that's very familiar language. It, it's kind of the Hebrew version of a long, long time ago or once upon a time. It shows up more than 100 times in the Old Testament, that phrase, now the word of the Lord came to. Now the word of the Lord came to Abraham or Elijah or Nathan or Moses or Isaiah or Zechariah, etc., etc. There's always this expectation, right, that when the word of the Lord comes to one of his men or women, that they are going to obey the word of the Lord. Even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult or uncomfortable, there might be some hemming and hawing, some negotiations. The word of the Lord came to Moses, and Moses is like, ah, I'm not really qualified. But he obeys. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and gave him an uncomfortable, kind of dangerous task go and confront King David about his sin. And he obeyed. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and gave him an incredibly uncomfortable task lay on your left side for 390 days. Uncomfortable. But he obeyed. There was this expectation of obedience. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, who is Jonah, the son of Amittai? This isn't the first time that we're introduced to Jonah in the Bible. He shows up in 2 Kings chapter 14. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we learn that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam the 2nd. Jerem the Let me try that one again. Jeroboam the 2nd was a king of Israel. Put that in a little bit of historical context, a timeline for you. There's Jeroboam and Jonah, okay? About 200 years after King David reigned. Those are the days of Jeroboam. So the kingdom, David's kingdom, has been split into a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah, for about 150 years at this point. A little bit more kind of historical timeline to give you a sense of when we're talking. It's about 750 years before Jesus' birth. So we're talking in the eighth century, these events unfold, events that are remarkably still relevant to us today. Jeroboam's reign was marked by military and political success, expansion of Israel's borders, of prosperity, and ingrained sin. The summary of Jeroboam II's reign is he did evil in the sight of God. The sins that were especially weighty were injustice, oppression of the poor, and idolatry. So Jeroboam is, you know, 800, 770 A.D., Jonah's right around this time prophesying at the same time. Contemporaries of Jonah are Hosea and Amos, two other prophets prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam. And I think it's instructive to pay attention to what they were saying at the same time. Amos says, or God says through Amos, Behold, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. It's ominous. Hosea, Hosea has been called Israel's deathbed prophet, not because he was on his deathbed, but because Israel was on its deathbed. In Hosea chapter 8, the prophet says, Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. In other words, God is saying through, through Hosea, I'm their God, and they're not even consulting me about who they anoint as king, who they put a crown on. Any Tom, Dick, or Harry, they're just putting a crown on them, not even consulting me. With their silver and their gold, they make idols for their destruction. They sow the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. What's that mean? Well, we don't have time to get into it but it's not good. One more verse. Though they hire allies from among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute they are forced to pay. Harsh words of condemnation and judgment. What is Jonah saying at this time? We have a slight insight into what he was saying from that passage in 2 Kings. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Ereba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. Okay. A few red flags, right? Maybe some alarm bells. Now, this does say it's the word of the Lord coming through Jonah to Jeroboam. But Amos has said, God's rising against your house with a sword. Hosea said, you're going to writhe under the amount of tribute you're forced to pay. And Jonah's saying, hey, expand your borders. Is that the full message that Jonah was proclaiming? We don't know. But it's enough to give us pause and uh, make us ask questions about what's going on with Jonah. Okay. The text of Jonah continues. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, we've met Jonah. Uh, What about Nineveh? Who or what is Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, about 600 miles to the east of Israel. The Assyrian Empire, well, they were the bully on the block. Kids, who, who's the bully in your school? Don't say it out loud. Sure you've got one? Tell your parents later. Okay. In my junior high, the bully was a kid named Donnie. My junior high was, was two stories, and Donnie loved to grab kids' backpacks and throw them out the second-story window or calculators or shoes. If you were lucky, it landed down in the grass and you could go get it. If you were unlucky, it landed on the first-floor roof and you had to get a janitor to go out there and get it for you. And he's like, Donnie? Yep, Donnie. Donnie was the bully. Assyria... They were the bullies in the block. They were known for their cruelty, for their violence. They would go in and wage war and take captives and lead the captives into exile with fish hooks in their mouths. School bullies collect backpacks and milk money. The Assyrians collected heads. This is a, it's kind of dark, I hope you can see it, uh, an archaeological relief. An engraving. It's the black obelisk of Shalmaneser. I believe you can still see this at the museum in University of Chicago. If you see what they're carrying there, they're carrying heads. They decorated the city of Nineveh with heads they had taken in battle. Here's another picture from the same relief. The man standing, being bowed down to, that is King Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, The person doing the bowing, paying homage, paying tribute, is a king of Israel. Jeroboam's granddad, Jehu. Assyria was, for all intents and purposes, a a, a terrorist state. I don't blame Jonah for not being excited about being called to go to Nineveh and call out their sins. Okay? But what's the text say? And Jonah rose. God says, arise, and Jonah rose. To flee to Tarshish. Oh, not not, and Jonah arose, but Jonah arose. To flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Where is Tarshish? No one knows. (laughs) Best guess is Spain. Spain. He's been told, go 600 miles to the east. He decides to go 2,500 miles to the west. <laughs> Wherever Tarshish is, geographically it doesn't matter. What matters is that it's away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're a young one, sitting in the synagogue... Hearing the story of Jonah for the first time, you would be very tempted to interrupt the rabbi and say, "Wait, wait, wait. Can you read that again?" The word of God came to a Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Arise and go to Nineveh." But he arose to flee. And you'd scoot to the edge of your seat and say, "This is going to get good." And it does. Jonah arises to flee. And he goes down to Joppa, modern-day Jaffa, a port city, and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it. I'm emphasizing down. Which direction was God? Up. The sins have come up to me. And Jonah, through chapter 1 and chapter 2, keeps going down, down. Down. And in case we didn't pick up on that verbal trick, the author makes it clear. He went down, away from the presence of the Lord. That's our text for this morning. But there's a few truths that I want to highlight. They're themes that we're going to pick up and develop later. I just want to highlight them for a few minutes now. Develop them in later weeks. Truth one. God elects. God chooses. Uh, God had a mission to Nineveh. Jonah wasn't in the front of the class saying, send me, send me, right? Uh, There was no Google sign up. God chose Jonah. He appointed Jonah. This is your task now, Jonah. And Jonah was a part of the larger community of Israel, the chosen people of God, God's elect nation. From the beginning, God chose, God elect for the purpose of serving the nations when God called Abraham, when he chose him, when he elected him, he said, I am going to bless you. I am going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing to the nations. All the nations will be blessed through you. God elects, and it's for service. Truth two God speaks. I referred to those words of, as formulaic words. The word of God came to. They are. But don't miss how wonderful that is. God speaks. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. It's what we would expect, right? God is a personal God and he created us for relationship with him. Relationship requires communication. And God takes the initiative. God steps forward. God communicates. He speaks. He isn't hiding. And that's as true now as it was in Jonah's day. God speaks through His created order. Day and night, they pour forth speech. He speaks through His written Word. He speaks through the incarnate Word, Jesus. And he speaks through the church. The church that helps us understand and interpret and apply all this communication from God. And what we're going to see in the book of Jonah is that sometimes God also speaks to his church, speaks to his people through the world. God's words, we're going to find them On the mouth of pagan sailors, correcting Jonah, calling him back to faithfulness. Truth two, God speaks. Truth three, God commands. In just verse one of the book of Jonah, there are three commands. Arise, go, and call out. But even when God's commands aren't explicit, His communication to us includes implicit commands. Abraham Kuyper referred to this as the never silenced thou shalt" that proceeds from God. When God communicates who he is, there are commands implied in that. For example, when he says, I am a God of love the implicit command is rest in that love. Believe in my love. Trust in my love. When he communicates that he is faithful, the implicit command is trust in my faithfulness. God speaks. God commands. So the question that Jonah brings to the forefront is are we listening And are we obeying? Are we expecting to hear from God? How is God calling you? How is God speaking to you? How is he inviting you to participate in his grand global mission? God speaks. We listen. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. Truth four, God confronts. God sends Jonah to Nineveh to confront the evil Ninevites about their sin. Right? Right. But this book is not called the book of God's confrontation with the Ninevites, it's called Jonah. Primarily, this is a book about God confronting the sin hiding in Jonah's heart. It's God confronting that sin there. And by implication, the sins of his people, Israel and the church. Yes, God confronts the sins of the world. But first and foremost, he's confronting the sins of his people in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah confronts Jonah's really bad theology. Jonah has a limited view of God's election. He thinks it's all about blessing and privilege and forgets it's about responsibility to the nations. He has a limited view of God's grace and mercy. He's a mercy hoarder. He loves it when it's for him, but not them. And he has, and this is part of the comedy of the book, a limited view of God's presence. He's trying to escape the presence of the Lord. Now, he knew God, God's eyes were on Nineveh to the east. Did he not think God could turn his head to the left and see him in the west? Did he think that God's you know vision was limited to 600 miles, 25 might be saved? It's foolishness. But men and women with guilty consciences try the impossible. Adam tried to hide. Jonah tried to run. We all try this from time to time. We run to fun and pleasure. We hide in career. We try to drown out the noise of God's voice with the noise of a modern world. I did. So are you running, hiding, pulling away from the presence of God? That is sinful man's natural response to holy God. It's a defense mechanism. But it doesn't work. Did not work for Jonah, will not work for us. God is hot on our heels. As the poet describes him, the hound of heaven will not let you go. Even more sadly, Jonah had a limited view of God's worth. Follow his logic with me for just a moment. He says, I'm going to flee from the presence of God. In other words... It's better to be without God than to follow through with this mission. Wow. What a stark contrast to the people's response that you see in Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, God says to the people, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. He's going to clear out the enemies. He's going to win the battles for you. He's going to give you the land, but I'm not going with you. And the people of Israel rip their garments and say, this is a disastrous word. We don't want the land without you. We want your presence. Not Jonah. I want to get away from the presence of God. Why? We're going to get into it later. But here's a hint. He loved something more than God. There was idolatry hiding in Jonah's heart that God is about to expose. So some of the questions that the book of Jonah is going to keep asking us over and over again is are we placing limits of God? Do we share his flawed theology? For Jonah, God was a God of Israel. His grace and mercy stopped at its borders. His sovereignty stopped at its borders. Do we share that flawed theology? Do we say God's grace and mercy is for everybody, but not them? They're outside the realm of God's grace and mercy. Do we say to God that you're limited to the four walls of the church? You reign here, but the affairs of the world, not so much. Do we limit God temporally, To Sundays and say, God, we're going to give you an hour and a half, but Monday through Saturday, especially Friday night, that's mine. Are you limiting God saying, I give you everything in my life, but have you underestimated, limited the worth of God and said, God, you're great. And I'm with you as long as you let me have you and fill in the blank. But if you make me choose between you and fill in the blank, I'm going down to Jaffa to flee from the presence of the Lord. Just a few of the themes that we'll be exploring. You're all so excited now, right? Now, I will be exceedingly hard On Jonah I don't like him (laughs) but I know he stands as a representative for Israel for the church for God's people and the sins that so often creep in among those who feel they own God they're privileged and I'm hard on Jonah because I see a bit of me in him I'm a rebel at heart. That's why the theme of his grace and his mercy, God's grace and God's mercy that come in this book are so welcome. I need them. As hard as I am on Jonah, he is a prophet, and he does point us to Jesus. In the Gospels, Jesus says to the people, One greater than Jonah is here among you. Jonah was sent on a mission to foreigners, to his sworn enemies, one that could cost him his life, and he ran. Jesus, sent to rebellious humanity who had declared themselves God's enemies, knowing he'd go to the cross. And the one who was sent, Jesus, completed perfectly the will of God. We're going to explore that as we go, too. I hope that sets up the series well, and I hope you stay with us. Would you pray with us this morning? Father, the book of Jonah is, in many ways, a cautionary tale, uh, what happens when we try to flee from your presence, when we reject your will, when we disobey your commands. So it, it, it encourages us to pray, O oh Father, bind our wandering hearts to thee. But it's more than just a tale of warning. It's a story that shows us how big of a God you are, how sovereign you are, how patient you are, how good and how merciful you are. Father, we pray that through these few chapters, our vision and our love for you would grow. In Jesus' precious name, amen.